Good morning, Four Corners. There's a wonderful amount of kid traffic coming up here in the morning. Just reminds me as, Paul, uh, as uh, Will prayed of what a blessing it is to have all of these little people among us who are learning about the Lord and seeing mom and dad praise him and also themselves uh, praising him. You know, it, it's uh, exciting to see God change hearts of our kids, change their hearts, and to give them a heart for his word, for his people, for his praises. And on that note, let me just say happy Father's Day to all of our dads who are here this morning. What an honor and a joy it is to be a father. It is such a blessing. And my prayer for us today is twofold. Uh, As I was thinking about uh, today being Father's Day, uh, two things, two big picture prayers for us. And the first is that we'll give thanks to God for our children as dads. Most fundamentally, you know, we're told in Scripture that we are to give thanks to God for all things through Jesus Christ, that we are to be thankful people. This is what it means to know the Lord, is to be thankful by nature, but specifically that we would give thanks to God today as we reflect on Father's Day, that we would give thanks to God for our children. And let me just say this to us, that we would enjoy our children. You know, I think, I think there's such a, a tendency to survive <laughs> maybe seasons of parenthood, you know, maybe especially the earliest years. And then uh, there's, there's kind of a parentheses, I guess, until the teenage years. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, but uh, sometimes it tends to be that way. So surviving periods of childhood. But that rather than thinking about getting through or surviving uh, or just sort of making it work, checking off all the duties, that there would be deep and profound enjoyment of our children as gifts from the Lord. Because that's precisely what they are. That's the testimony of Scripture, that our children are gifts to us to be enjoyed and loved and cherished. And so uh, today that we would enjoy our children as gifts. And then secondly, that we will embrace this responsibility that God has given us to father our children. That it is not just something to be approached passively, but it is a responsibility, is a great responsibility, a weighty responsibility that has been given to us or else we would not have children Uh, whether through a natural birth or adoption. If the Lord has in his providence given us children, then he has called us to a responsibility to raise those children and so that we would not be shirking or running away from this responsibility. It is time-consuming. It is challenging. It shows us all of our sins right there before our eyes. It is not an easy task. And so the temptation is to shirk it to farm it out or to run away from it passively, to withdraw into self, to withdraw into hobbies, to withdraw into our friendships, but to withdraw away from the great weight of fathering and that we would not do that, but rather that we would press into this task relying on the Lord's help. And that really is key. You know, we never father apart from The heavenly father. We never father apart from a recognition that God is the perfect father and he equips us for this work. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we can do it well by his grace. And 
through much prayer and reliance on him. So those are my two prayers for us, that we would be thankful people, thankful fathers, and that we would be responsible fathers before the Lord. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Today we're in verses 12 to 17. And in our journey through Exodus, we have just recently come out of the Ten Commandments. So if you're interested, if you've just recently started coming, you're interested at all in uh, what was covered there, you can go back through. We took one commandment each week, uh, went through the the Ten Commandments, so a, a little faster than one word. Uh, you know, for a week, although some weeks there's maybe two words. Um, but uh, we, we took one commandment each week. And, uh, but today we return to the book of the covenant or the covenant codes. And this is the legal material that comes directly after the Ten Commandments. So if you, were, if you thought you were out of the law court and you were moving on to something else, well, you still have quite a ways to go. So these chapters, 21, 22, and 23, are the legal material that, that come out of, the grow out of, on the ground level, the Ten Commandments. And so we get in these three chapters what's been called the Book of the Covenant, explaining the outworking of these Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the servant or slave laws in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And we saw this one big idea, how God protects the vulnerable. And so you could come to a passage like that and stumble over it and think, aha, the Bible uh, allows for slavery. And we talked about that last week, the difference between ancient slavery and the slavery that we're accustomed to, that we think of when we think of American uh, slavery pre-Civil War. Uh, But the big thing that we're meant to take away from that passage is the way in which God protects the vulnerable in the midst of a world that is broken, in the midst of a fallen society, God governs that fallen society with his perfectly just law. And in doing so, he protects those who otherwise would be without protection. He protects those who otherwise would be trampled on or taken advantage of, would be exploited. So he protects the vulnerable. Today, as we come to verses 12 to 17, we get a passage focused on applying the death penalty. And so the focus today will be on these commands regarding the death penalty. Four different sins that are punishable by death according to God's law. These are grievous in God's sight. We're meant to understand that. And each of these ends with the phrase, shall be put to death. And so, uh, you know, commentators debate over what section, what what verses constitute a section, and you could take these verses with the following verses, but what you find is these verses, uh, verses 12 to 17, all end in that same way, shall be put to death. And what you find in the subsequent verses, running to the end of the chapter, what you find are uh, these different scenarios. And so next time we come to Exodus, we will look at those different scenarios that involve personal harm, bodily injury, and so forth. But for today, we take these verses, this chunk of verses, regarding the death penalty. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Capital Crimes. Capital Crimes. If you would please stand with me as we read God's Word together. So we're Exodus 21, verses 12 to 17. This is the word of God. Profitable. Fully equipping us 
for every good work. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. You can go ahead and be seated. You'll see how these verses hang together with shall be put to death. And then beginning in verse 18, uh, when men quarrel. And then verse 20, when a man strikes his slave. Verse 22, when men strive together. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of, uh, when a, when a man strikes the eye of his slave. And then verse 28, when an ox scores a man. So you get these various scenarios that come regarding personal harm and bodily injury and so forth. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing over our time studying these verses. And by the way, that's always what we're about when uh, we come to this period of instruction, sermon time. Uh, You you shouldn't be very interested in what Lonnie has to say. Uh, We should be very interested in what the Lord our God has to say. And that's the reason why uh, we want to explain his word, because when we explain his word, God speaks to his people. God feeds his people. We're not interested in the wisdom of men. We want to hear from the living God, our creator. And that's what uh, we, that's what happens when we come to the scriptures. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you give us this instruction and you give us uh, this revelation of who you are and who we are and what this world is like, what it means to navigate this broken, fallen world and uh, what it means to live well unto you by your grace. Lord, we thank you that uh, though we cannot keep the law, Uh, And we need a Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you have written your law on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And that these things, summed up in love of God and neighbor, have been imprinted onto the hearts of your people. God, we praise you that we can say with Paul in Romans 7.22 that we delight in the law of the Lord in our inner being. That in our inner selves, deep within our persons, we love your law, we delight in it, and we want to do it. We meditate on it day and night. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have awakened us from our slumber, that you have brought us to life out of our death, our deadness in sin, and you have given us hearts to know you, to seek you, and to please you, Lord. We pray that you would guide us this morning as we come to your word, that the teaching of your word would be clear, Lord, that that there would be a desire to know what you have said, that we would care when we hear, thus says the Lord, that we would want to know your heart for us, your mind for us, and that we would have the mind of Christ, the one who perfectly obeyed your law. God, we thank you for our Redeemer, who by his atoning death gives us his spirit, and removes our sin. Lord, we thank you for his perfection. We thank you that he pleased you in every single way, in uh, the, the deepest ways, in the highest ways, and in all the minutia, he was perfect. 
He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we thank you that he is uh, still living. He has risen and he is at your right hand, Father, and he will come back for us. We look forward to seeing him, incarnate deity, the word made flesh, our redeemer, our elder brother. Father, we anticipate the day when we will stand before you a spotless as the bride of Christ presented to our groom. Lord, we thank you that he's with us now and we pray that he would be honored and that he would supply the help that is needed in preaching and in hearing that we would all be not just hearers but doers of the word as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, the one before us today, gives us four laws that deal with three categories. So four laws that deal with three categories, and you'll see these up here on the screen if you want to write them down. So we have intentional homicide, and that takes us from verses 12 to 14, injury to parents, verses 15, and then 17, and then involvement in kidnapping, verse 16. And so with that, let's go to our first point here, the first uh, category of laws here deserving the death penalty, and that would be intentional homicide, verses 12 to 14. Let's read those verses again. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now we discussed this category of sin when dealing with the sixth commandment. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as we go through this book of the covenant, these covenant codes, that we're going to be going back to the Ten Commandments because that's precisely what they are. They're an outworking of those Ten Commandments. And so here we're dealing with the sixth commandment. Chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. And both the basis and the need for such commandments or laws go back to Genesis. So if we're, if we're going to understand the basis for uh, these laws and the way that they are articulated with, with, with respect to the penalty, and if we are going to understand the need for such commandments, we have to rewind ourselves in the Bible and go back to the earliest chapters in the book of Genesis. So first... The basis for these laws. The basis for these laws. When God made human beings, he made them in his image. There are two, uh, Al Mohler uh, makes this point often. Um, he is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has a, a podcast called The Briefing, and I would commend that to you. It's, it's excellent just looking at uh, what's going on in the news from a Christian worldview perspective, but uh, Moeller will often mention two great distinctions that form the basis for the Christian worldview, and the first is the distinction between God and everything else, and the second is the distinction between human beings and all other created beings. And this second distinction is what is in view here. When God made human beings, he made them in his image. Uh, we are like God. We are in his image. We are in his likeness. We have the ability to relate to God. We have that moral capacity. We can hear his voice and obey his voice or disobey his word. So we read this in Genesis 127. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we see the outworking of this in the dominion that human beings are given over the earth. We act as God's ambassadors over all of creation. We're representatives of God here on earth. So placed over the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the animals of the land. We have dominion because God has placed us here in his stead. Created in his image. And this idea of being made in God's image is reiterated to Noah after he comes off of the ark. And so when we read of the story of Noah's ark, we're meant to understand a kind of recreation moment. We would expect that the the things that were said in the garden, the things that were were laid out there with regard to Adam and Eve, would be recommunicated or reiterated as Noah and his family step off of the ark. This is a recreation moment. This is humanity starting over. And we find there in Genesis 9-6, as Noah and his family comes off of the ark, we find these words. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so what that tells us is that the heinousness of murder and the necessary punishment for it are grounded in the fact that human beings are made in God's image. There's a grounds here, and you see that with the language. By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is not arbitrary. This is not just some some random law, but it is built on something. It's grounded in something. And so this murder penalty is grounded in who human beings are. And let me just submit this to us. It, is, it should be no surprise to us that in a modern secular society where belief in God has been abandoned, practice of the death penalty will likewise be abandoned. Because uh, the whole grounding for the death penalty is in the image of God. It goes all the way back to Genesis 9, before God gave the law. Where God goes, the death penalty goes. Or I should say, where God goes out, the death penalty likewise goes out. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his own image. Second, the need for these laws. So we see the basis for these laws. They're rooted in uh, the heinousness of murder because we are made in God's image. It is a very different thing to kill an animal. Uh, We want to take care of animals. Cruelty to animals is an evil thing. But it is a very different thing to kill an animal than to kill a human being. Second, The need for these laws, so the basis for these laws goes back to Genesis, but also the need for these laws. Although human beings were made perfect and sinless, we fell. Human beings are a fallen race. Genesis 3, 11, God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God wasn't in the dark. He knew what was going on. But he is drawing a confession out of Adam. He is confronting Adam with his sin. Have you done what I, the Lord God, your maker, commanded you not to do? And the answer to that is yes. Adam and Eve had sinned against God. They had disobeyed God. So human beings fell into sin. 
And it, it really is dramatic, and we should, we should take it this way. It really is dramatic that the first narrative after the fall is the killing of one brother by another, Cain and Abel. This is the outworking of the fall. That's what the narrative is trying to show us. We have the fall, and it's not a sort of evolutionary model. It's not like Adam and Eve fell, and then, you know, we see like level two wickedness, and it goes up level four wickedness, and it takes a few centuries before we get a level eight or nine, and then, you know, a while before we would get a ten. Immediate ten. Immediate ten. That's the effect of the fall. That is human beings after eating, after disobeying. So chapter 4, verse 8, we get this premeditated intentional murder where Cain kills his brother. Chapter 4, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The impression there is he spoke to his brother, hey, Abel, come out to the field with me. Hey, Abel, let's go go look for some whatever. And then he rises up against his brother and kills him. And we see that this sort of activity had reached epic proportions by the time of Noah. And this may be something that you miss when you're reading the flood narrative, but when you get to chapter 6 with Noah, we read this. Now the earth, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And we get a little hint of this with Lamech, uh, Cain's descendant. He he, uh, boasts of killing a man, a young man, maybe a boy, who strikes him, uh, bruises him, he slashes him down, takes his life. A little indicator of where things are going. This is Cain's seed working out. And upon the whole earth, it had become a place full of murder. By the time you get to Noah. So we can trace the basis for this murder law and the need for it by going back to the opening chapters of the Bible. We have to go back there to to root ourselves in this teaching. And here in Exodus, God gives this law to his covenant people. They are not to intentionally kill another human being. And if they do, they must be put to death. Verse 14, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. This is essentially what is said in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And this is reiterated, I think, in Romans chapter 13, where Paul talks about the, the governing authorities being appointed by God, even calls them ministers of God, appointed for this very purpose, that they would bear the sword against evildoers. Now, bear the sword is not hard to understand. It's amazing. How commentators can twist scripture. and Well, it doesn't necessarily have to... What else do you use a sword for? A sword is an instrument of execution. That is clear. That is so very obvious. You have to twist and twist and twist to get away from that. And so before the law, you have the death penalty there with with Noah. And in the law, you have the death penalty here with Moses. And then after the coming of Christ, for those who may say, well, Christ has come now. 
after the coming of Christ, we see the recognition that this is still embedded in the created order as Paul discusses it in Romans chapter 13. However, sometimes bloodshed occurs by accident. And so we get an exception. We get an exception here in these verses. So look at verse 13 again. But, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Now this is killing without premeditation and intent. This is killing without lying in wait, without willfully attacking another to kill him by cunning, or without intent as Numbers 35 verse 15 straightforwardly says, this is, this is a very different thing. This is accidental, non-deliberate, unintentional killing. And we get a little more vividness here with this in Numbers 35 verses 22 to 23. Let me read that to you. But if he pushed him suddenly, notice this, without enmity. This is not push someone, you know, so they fall off of a cliff. This is to push someone suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him, dropped it on him. You imagine someone working a little higher up the hill and they have this massive stone and they trip, they drop the stone, it falls on someone else's head and he dies. So it goes on to say, uh, without seeing him, he dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm. So there's no intent here to harm the person. There's no anger and enmity. There's no deliberateness, this is an accident. And the Lord says here in such cases that he will establish a place of refuge. And in Numbers 35, we get this idea of the cities of refuge. These are places, when the Israelites enter into the promised land, these are places where if you accidentally kill someone, you can go to those places while there's an investigation that's taking place. You can go to those places And be protected from the avenger, the the family member who would be responsible, who would be elected to carry out the blood vengeance on that person who had killed their loved one. This is a place where a manslayer could flee to be safe from the avenger of blood. Now, there is one little detail here that I want to draw your attention to before we move on. And I think this is pretty straightforward as we think about the difference between accidental and intentional premeditated killing. But I want to draw your attention to an important point here. Notice how these verses describe accidental killing. Look at verse 13. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. But God let him fall into his hand. And we just can't overlook this. And this is the point I think we're meant to gather is that uh, God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over accidents. So that when an accident occurs, when, when, when the man higher on the hill drops that stone and it falls on that other guy, that it, it can be said here that God Let that person fall into the other person's hand. And I think this is comforting for us. You might say, well, how is that comforting for us? It's comforting for us because it lets us know that all the accidents that happen in this life, 
God is sovereign over all of that. The little things that happen to us that annoy us, that drive us crazy. You know, this is, this is one of the great uh, remedies for frustration and annoyance and, and, and all of that. As we go through our days and things happen, they're just like, oh, you know, and it's just frustrating. It's just to remember, well, God is sovereign over that. It could have not happened. And there are many times in which it hasn't happened. Many times in which God has spared us from inconvenience. In which God has spared us from all sorts of breaking down things. Problems, issues, concerns of life. God has spared us. But sometimes in his divine wisdom, he leads us right into those things. And that's all the small things in life. But it's also true for the big things, the accidents, even accidents that result in death. That the Lord our God is sovereign. And we can entrust ourselves into God's hands. And let me say this. It is important that we recognize the need to avoid negligence. It's important that we talked about this with the sixth commandment. It's important that we not be negligent. It's important that we seek safety. It's important that you not fly through Atlanta as I sometimes see. And it does you know, just gets me kind of fired up. See those guys racing down. Just think about it. You are putting families in danger as you're flying down the interstate, just having fun. That's the kind of evil that results in death. And that involves culpability. But we recognize that at the end of the day, there's always certain levels of negligence. We are so flawed. We talked about this with the six. Commandment. We are so limited. We're so flawed. We're so imperfect. Is there ever, are there, there are obviously accidents that happen where there's no culpability whatsoever at all, even in the minutia. But uh, oftentimes we just recognize our frailty as these things in life happen. And I think what this tells us and the way in which it comforts us is it reminds us that God is in control and we can trust him and we can entrust all these things into his hands. God gives life and God takes it away. Just as Job recognized when he lost all of his children and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This resting, this peace in God's sovereignty is the bulwark of a Christian life. You know, I hear uh, people say sometimes that uh, God's total sovereignty overall uh, really isn't very practical for real life. And, I, and I, would, I would contend with that strongly. A belief in God's absolute sovereignty overall so that not one will moves apart from his sovereignty, not one speck of dust exists apart from his sovereignty, not one, not one bird falls to the ground apart from his will. That is so comforting for life. It allows us to just rest in him and to seek his will and to ask for his forgiveness and to trust that he is truly in control. You know, Christians are fond of saying uh, the platitude, God is in control. But do you believe that? Do you really believe that God is in control? It impacts the way we think about and respond to every situation. So that's the first category we see, intentional homicide, verses 12 to 14. And now we move to injury to parents. So for that, let's look at verses 15 to 17. Uh, 
Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. And then verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Well, once again, no surprise, we are back in the Ten Commandments. And in these two verses, the fifth commandment is in view. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You might remember from our time in, the, in this commandment that packed into this word honor is the idea of weight. So if you were here for the fifth commandment, you'll remember uh, that honoring is the idea of ascribing weight or treating someone as weighty. We are to treat our parents with weightiness, not lightness, not flippancy, not disregard. This is to go with us from the cradle all the way to the grave. We are to treat our parents in this way. Well, there are two particularly grievous ways in which parents can be treated lightly, uh, in which parents can be dishonored, not held in high regard, not held with the weight that they deserve as our parents. They can be struck and they can be cursed. Two particularly grievous ways that we don't hold them as weighty. In other words, our parents can be physically or verbally abused by their children. Now, you think about that, it just makes you recoil. You're like, that's just horrendous, it's off, but it happens. It happened then and it happens today, physically or verbally Abused. And let me say this to us, they can be verbally abused to their face or behind their back. They can be abused, they can be spoken at, cursed, spoken ill of, to them or about them. Now there are a few things we need to notice here that we need to download into our minds very clearly. First, in this short set of commandments... This relationship to parents gets mentioned twice. Notice that. It gets mentioned twice in two separate verses. Now, it was interesting this past week just to read uh, different commentators reflecting on this. And commentators really, on the whole, scratch their heads as to why the two are separated. And there might be various reasons, and various reasons are proposed, for why it is that verse 15 is separated from verse 17. You would expect the two to be together. It would be so much neater. Right? You know, if you, you just had the homicide mentioned and then you had parents mentioned and kidnapping mentioned. Uh, that would be, you would think, a little bit neater. So why is it that they are separated? Well, there, there could, like I said, there could be various reasons. But let me just say this. On the surface, what is the overall effect of this as we come to these verses? And the effect is that you get punched with it twice. Uh, you get it one good solid time, and you move away for a minute, and then you're right back there again. The importance of parents and how we treat them, you could say, fills this section. Think about that. This is a section on the death penalty. This is a section on capital crimes. You shall die. You shall be put to death. Such a person shall die. And, and what we could say is that how parents are treated fills this section. That might be surprising to you as you come to it. Just as our parents gave us life, to attack them or to erase them is to invite death. Do you see the inherent logic? 
To do that to our parents is to essentially undo our very existence. We would not exist without our parents. To treat them in that way would be to essentially snuff yourself out. Proverbs 20, verse 20, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. This is what the Bible says about treatment of parents. So here's the one general truth that we all need to see. And I remember when we went through the fifth commandment, uh, talking with folks, just all the different, we, we could go around this morning, we would form a big circle, give a microphone, we could go around, and we could talk about all the nuances involved when it comes to our parents, aging parents, unbelieving parents, uh, when it comes to uh, parents who try to control uh, their adult kids' lives, parents who don't listen when the grandkids go over, <laughs> all the different things that go on and, and all the layers of complexity. We could go into all of that. And, and by the way, let me just say this. These, even these laws are not comprehensive. That's, where the, that's the reason there were judges in the land. There were people who would hear cases and who would decide and who with God's wisdom would determine has this child cursed his mother and father oh, at what point does the one-year-old hitting the chin translate into a child or a teenager punching dad right what at what point does that does that transition these are the sorts of things that judges would have had to navigate that there would have had to be to have been a, a, an attentiveness to the intention of God's law. So we can't cover all the little details and all the nuances involved, but here's the one big idea that we have to see. How we treat our parents is a really big deal to God. Okay? Let me just make that very clear. And, and the most obvious way that we know that is how it fills this section on death penalty cases. So let that just fall, right? Let that fall on the shoulders. Let that fall on the heart. Drink that down and ask for the Lord's wisdom for how to apply it in your specific situation. Second, a second thing we need to notice, second observation here, notice that to simply strike a parent is placed on the same level as murdering someone else. Before, we see uh, the premeditated, intentional murder of another human being. Here, the same penalty is given for someone who strikes or even curses his or her mother or father. The same penalty is given if you murder someone. In other words, you don't have to murder them to be executed. You just have to strike them with your hand, or let me say this, with your tongue to be executed according to God's law. Now, once again, we have here the gravity of the position of parents. You know, I think about Jesus here. Jesus was the perfect kid. He was. Perfect kid, whatever that looks like. None of us knows what that looks like. <laughs> so we, we, just can't, we just can't go there. We weren't perfect kids. We don't have perfect kids. But Jesus was the perfect kid. But guess what? Mary and Joseph were not the perfect parents. So just imagine all the ways that Mary and Joseph fell short. All the ways that they failed. 
All the ways they didn't nurture and cherish Jesus. All the ways that he was not properly disciplined. Maybe disciplined for things he did not do. All the ways that his father would have been harsh with him. Joseph would have been harsh with him. Jesus perfect in all of that. Jesus perfectly submitted to his mom and dad. That if there was ever a child that could say, I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. Because I'm perfect and they're not. Right? Jesus, he, he, he was under, as Luke tells us, he was under his parents. He submitted to his parents, under his parents' authority, though they were imperfect. So we see the gravity of the position of parents. And let me just say this. As we think about what it means to be an adult, to navigate life as an adult, authority, gratitude, and love can all be traced back to parents. Authority, gratitude, and love can all be traced back to the relationship of a child to his or her parents. Uh, Let me say it this way. If you won't submit to parents, you won't submit to anyone, right? I mean, come on. If you'll strike or curse those who gave you life, you'll strike or curse or murder anyone. If you won't love those whom you should naturally love and who gave you life or who nurtured your life, and I understand the complexities of parents who abandon their children and the complexities regarding adoption and all of that, but if you won't love those who nurtured your life, how can you love anybody else? It just strips away authority in a human being. When When a child grows up without honoring of parents. It strips away any notion of authority. It strips away any notion of thankfulness and gratitude. It strips away any notion of love. It creates a monster. It creates a monster. Are we trying to be our kids' friends while creating, raising a monster? We need to think about our parenting. We need to think about how it is that we permissively allow our children to trample on God's law without recourse, without consequence? Are we truly loving them? That's the reason Proverbs says that to not discipline our children is to hate them. And there's a reason that Hebrews 12 says that the way we know God loves us is that he disciplines us as sons. If God did not discipline us, that would show that we are not in loving communion with him in covenant. But the fact that we are, God gives us discipline. He gives us discipline to protect us from falling away, from ending up destroyed in hell. The same is true for us as parents. We are protecting our children from a world of hurt and a world of hurting other people by raising them to honor mom and dad under authority with gratitude with a loving heart. Before we move on to our final point, I just want to pause here to note how helpful it is to have this passage before our eyes on Father's Day in God's good providence. As fathers here this morning, we stand between generations. On the one hand, on the one side, is our fathers, our dads, those of us who are here, and we have dads that we are to honor. 
And on the other side are our children whom we are to train to honor. Fathers whom we honor and children whom we train to honor. Fathers whom we would never think to strike or curse or anything below that. And children whom we would raise to not strike or curse or anything related to that. Day by day, we are honoring and training. And listen to this. Day by day, we are modeling. We are modeling. Don't think that you can treat and speak about your parents any old way and somehow your kids are going to grow up to honor you. How foolish. You're going to show your kid, you're showing your kids how to treat you when you're older. The way you treat mom and dad, 20-something, 30-something, 40-something, 50-something, The way you treat mom and dad, your aging parents, our aging parents, our kids are watching. Do we honor mom and dad? Do we love mom and dad? Do we we denigrate mom and dad? Do we dismiss mom and dad? Do we disregard mom and dad? We're just setting ourselves up for that when we age. We're modeling how our children are going to grow up and treat us. They will follow our Example. So in that sense, our honoring and our training flow together. They become one in the same through our modeling. This is one aspect of our fatherhood as we think today about Father's Day. And thirdly, our third category involving the death penalty is involvement in kidnapping. So we've looked at intentional homicide, injury to parents, and involvement in kidnapping. Look at verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. If murder had a sister, her name would be kidnapping. If murder had a sister, her name would be kidnapping. To steal a person away from their loved ones is in many ways to murder them. At least as far as the family is concerned, that person is now gone. And we think about this with Jacob, with Joseph. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But as far as Jacob was concerned, his son was gone. He thought he was dead, but his brothers had sold him into slavery. His son was, though alive, gone. You may remember last week that I commented on pre-Civil War slavery in America. It was based on kidnapping. It it amazes me how people can twist God's word on the right and on the left. there's, There's no boundary either way. People across the spectrum twist scripture and do injustice to God's speech. It's amazing how... Uh, people at the time of the Civil War in, in, Ameri- in the history of American slavery could use the Bible to justify slavery. Just as people use the Bible to justify all kinds of garbage, all kinds of human wickedness. It was kidnapping. It was complicity, being complicit in, complicity in kidnapping, stealing people and selling them into slavery. Here, God says that this practice is evil unto death. 
It is an evil deserving death. Just as intentional homicide is deserving of death, kidnapping is likewise deserving of death. This is a particular kind of thievery. Soon, we will get to property laws, but stealing property does not result in the death penalty. You take somebody's ox, car, that's not going to result in the death penalty. But you steal a person, a human being made in God's image. And all that we said before about murder applies here. Who human beings are made in God's image. When you steal a human being and keep that person or sell that person, it is like murder and deserving of death. As I said before, probably the best example of this is at the end of Genesis with Joseph and his brothers. You, rem- you may remember in Genesis 37, uh, everything seems to be going along well. The, f- the family's there. We have Jacob's family, his 12 sons. The, the nation is beginning. And then all of a sudden, one day, Jacob sends his son Joseph, his favorite son, uh, the son who had had these dreams that he would be superior to his brothers. His brothers hated him. Uh, ruthlessly, they hated him. They were so jealous of him. And he sends him out to his brothers to check on them. And as they see him coming, they say, we're going to kill him. But they decide instead to sell him. Both of those, of course, evil and punishable by death. And in Genesis 37, we read, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. They had thrown him into a pit, uh, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And then in chapter 40, verse 15, we have Joseph. He's, he's been in Egypt, and at this point, he's risen to the top of Potiphar's household, but Potiphar's wife has falsely accused him of uh, attempted rape, and, and so he's thrown into prison, and there God blesses him, and God is with him, and God raises him up to the top, and then two of Pharaoh's servants come into the jail, the cupbearer and the baker, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and they have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams, and he tells the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position, and after he tells him that, he says, but please remember me. When you get out, remember me, I'm here. And then he explains why he's there in jail, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. By the way, let me say this. If anybody had reason to be bitter towards God, it was Joseph. I mean, just imagine. As we, let's just rewind what we were talking about, about circumstances and accidents and things that happen in our lives. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers and then falsely accused by his master's wife, and now he's in jail. If anybody could feel sorry for himself, if anybody could have a little bit of whining grace, if anybody could get a free pass at grumbling and being a little bitter, a little mad at God, it would be Joseph. But we get no hint of that. May it not be with us. May it not be with us as well. So Joseph says, I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Joseph's father, as I said before, Jacob, thought that his son was dead, torn by wild animals. Now God was working. This was God's doing. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We learn at the end of Genesis as as, uh, Joseph says that to his brothers. And the Psalms talk about how God sent Joseph there ahead of his family. So God was working But the brothers were still responsible for their evil. 
They had committed an offense against God that was deserving of death. And this is, this is really dramatic for us to think about. Uh, this is an important point as we close this morning. Had these laws been in effect during the time of the patriarchs, there would be no nation of Israel. All those guys would have been put to death. Uh, at least the ones who were, uh, and we don't get all the, all the details, you know, we, we, we read of the different ones who are involved. Uh, and it's a collective thing. Benjamin's not involved. We know that Reuben tries to protect uh, Joseph. So at God's tribunal, we don't know how all of that would have played out, but let me just say it this way. Most of the, the basis for the nation would have been wiped out by execution had this been in place. And we see God disciplining them as Joseph uh, pretends to, or says he's not the brother or, or he doesn't divulge that information. And we see God disciplining them and changing their hearts and working in their hearts. What we see in the story of Joseph is God's mercy. What they did was deserving of death. But God showed them mercy. And this reminds us of two things as we finish up this morning. Two things we need to take away from all of this about the death penalty. The first is we all deserve death. Uh, You can't read these verses, 12 to 17, and not come away with this great truth. We all in here right now have sinned against the Lord and are deserving of death. And we will all die in this life unless the Lord returns. We will feel the sting of death in that respect as those who are children of Adam. We'll all have to pass through the hour of our natural death. That's coming. But we do not have to die spiritually. Through Jesus Christ, death is defeated. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But then we read that the free gift comes through Jesus Christ. We can be saved through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we are deserving of death, but in Christ, with his righteousness imputed to our account, we stand before God holy and innocent and righteous and forgiven and pardoned. We are clear before the tribunal of God. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to feel the weight of this death penalty. You need to feel the weight of this sentence of death because that's the sentence that hangs over every single sinner who has not become one of God's saints through the blood of Christ. We all deserve death, but God is merciful to us through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Have you come to taste the grace of God through Jesus Christ? You know, Christianity is not about a moral code, though it gives us a, a very robust moral code. Christianity is not about uh, making sure that you uh, kind of come along to the, to the services and all of that. Uh, it's very important to gather together with God's people and to be involved. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Christianity is about what Christ accomplished to take away our sin guilt before a holy God who punishes with eternal death. That's the gospel. And the only way to be free, the only way to be made right The only way to be declared innocent, the only way 
to be transferred from sin and death to glory is through trusting in Jesus Christ. So let me just say uh, specifically this morning to the kids, have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Have you turned away from sin, a life of self, a life of following after the world? Have you turned away from that and said to God, thank you for Jesus, I trust in him to forgive me of all my sins? Talk to the Lord about your sins. Talk to him in the morning. Talk to him in the afternoon. Talk to him when you go to bed at night. And let me say this, finally. Fathers, fathers, it is our job to raise our children to understand that they deserve death, but that they can have life. Do your kids know that? It's a long game, 18 plus years, and it never stops of us feeding our children the gospel of God's grace in Christ, the gospel of the sin-defeating, death-conquering Redeemer. Let's pray.